Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 16. We're going to be there in a few minutes. I want to say hello to our other WNC campuses. We're going to be back. We kind of jump into God's Word a little earlier in this service uh, than we typically do because at all the campuses, including Biltmore and Espanol, we are going to be baptizing at the conclusion of the service, or really I would almost say the back half uh, of the service, all right? So again, also, hey, keep in your prayers. We've still got a team over in uh, the 1040 window over in Southeast Asia. They will be back here in about a week or so. Uh, so again, pray for them. That is part of uh, what God has for us to do. It's not just about reaching up and worship. It's not just about reaching in and community. It is also about reaching out to people both in WNC, in US of A, as well as the world, all right? So here's, uh, as was said earlier, we are in a series called Be the Movement. Be the Movement. At its inception, Christianity was a movement. It wasn't about buildings or capital campaigns or anything. It was about a movement that was centered around a conviction uh, that Jesus Christ had come as the sinless Son of God, died as a substitute in our place on the cross, got put in a tomb, and then came back up out of the grave, validating, verifying he was exactly who he said he was. And then what happened is he gave a mission or a commission to his people to go and make disciples of himself. And so what you see is you see Christianity just spread like a wildfire. It was a revolutionary method, message. Time had come. It swept the world. Didn't have armies. Didn't have monies. I really didn't even have any qualified people in positions of influence. It started with 12 fishermen and carpenters who were radically committed to the message of the gospel. And so uh, today we're going to look at a pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts. We're going to kind of land on one particular uh, passage and dig into that before we uh, begin to baptize people. But let me start. Some of you all know that on Thursday night we had a cool uh, privilege of having the uh, national championship head football coach of Clemson. Uh, Dabo Swinney was here. We were partnering with FCA, uh, and he was here. And there's, there's so many what I would just call Daboisms. I mean, there's so many little phrases that he's saying because he's a brother in the Lord. And so he was talking about his family, he was talking about his uh, football team, but most of all, he was talking about his faith as well. And uh, just some of the ones that I liked a bunch uh, was, uh, you know, obviously the all in. Uh, another one was, we're not made for the mountain, we're made, we're, we're made for, the, for the journey. Uh, I've always liked BYOG, bring your own guts. I mean, that's like, that's, oh, that's a great one, right? But the one I liked the best was actually uh, told before the whole evening began. And it actually said, he, I looked it up, and it began way back in 1977 when Clemson and Georgia Tech would have this uh, back and forth rivalry. And it's, it's about 1977, Georgia Tech decided we don't want to play Clemson anymore. Uh, we're going to, they actually subbed Clemson out for, of all play people, William and Mary. All right, like William and Mary was going to make a bigger impact. So Clemson wasn't that all that fired up about Georgia Tech's decision. So what they decided to do on the last football game there with Georgia Tech in Atlanta is they printed these $2 bills, all right, and they printed a $2 bill with uh, the Clemson paw on there. And what they challenge their people is it says, as you go to Atlanta, pay for everything with this Clemson $2 bill. Like, they have their own money. It's not their own money. They just put the tiger paw on there. And so what happened is they were paying everything, taxi drivers, um, restaurant tabs, tips, all those things. They started to pay with a $2 bill. And the whole idea was, is we want to make our mark. They're saying, we want to mark Atlanta. We want it to go on beyond, when we're way gone, these bills will still be in circulation, leaving a mark in Atlanta about the financial impact that we brought to this city. 
And so a coach was actually saying before it started, he said he brought that story back out at the national champ, right before the national championship game with the University of Alabama. Not this latest one, but the one a couple years ago where Deshaun Watson was the quarterback. He said he brought the team together in that pregame talk. He's like, listen, listen, listen. Tonight, and he told the whole story about the $2 bill and all that. He said, tonight, tonight, you have a chance to go out and make your mark. You're going to make your mark. And he listed a few things. He's gonna, he says, you're going to make your mark by how you play, by whether or not you fight for each other, and whether or not you actually love each other. And he's like, go out and make your mark. In other words, let them know that way past we're gone, we left a mark on this place. All that to say, in the book of Acts, there is a mark. There is a brand. There is a pattern. There is a line in the sand that is throughout the book of Acts on all different kinds of people. From nameless multitudes to religious people to military people to business women to all different kinds of people, you'll see this mark. I'm just going to kind of show you in the text, and then we're going to go to we're going to work our way to Acts 16, and that's where we're going to sit. But here's here you're going to see a pattern here. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Peter preaches, people repent and embrace Christ by faith. Immediately they're baptized. Acts chapter eight. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Same pattern, belief, baptism. We believe, we are baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, this is a conversation between a guy named Philip and and an unnamed eunuch who was like way up in the government. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And a quick little factoid is that is actually the first African on record that ever came to faith in Christ. Okay. There's actually more people. Africa is where the church in many ways is growing faster than any other part of the world. There are more people who are going to worship today in Kenya than actually worship Jesus in Canada. All right? So before the first European ever came to faith in Christ, what you see is the first African comes to faith in Christ. Acts chapter 10. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, I'll tell you one more. This is a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. It says the Lord opened her heart. That's the picture of just, you know what, there's some things, and all of a sudden her heart is open to what the gospel message is. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, belief, baptism, after she was baptized, in her household as well, she urged this, and it goes on to talk about she wants to minister to them and encourage them and those things. So let me give you one more. Acts 18. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, this would have like shocked people back then. This was like the religious, most religious Jewish person. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, patterned the same. Believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and what? They were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. Now here's what we're going to do. Today, Today, we're going to offer you a chance to make the same decision that you see in the text, all right? To believe in Jesus and then to go public with your faith. 
to own your faith, to confess your faith in Jesus through baptism, all right? We're going to have everything you need, all right? Everything you need is going to be uh, provided for you today. I mean, towels, hair dryer, change of clothes, masseuse, pedicure, all those things. It's all, it's all right there for you. There's like no reason at all uh, to not have this. So here, here's, here's the context of where we're going to kind of plant for a little bit in a passage and show you the same pattern, but just in a little more detail. This context is in a Greek city named Philippi. Philippi, if you look earlier in Acts 16, you start to see how the church got planted first with a businesswoman named Lydia, and then you go to basically a demon-possessed girl, think, think sex trade today, somebody who was owned and used. She gets saved. The owners of her get upset because their profit is gone. They get very violent. They throw Paul and Silas into prison. That's where they are. It says he throws them into the inner prison. Inner prison was like the lowest part of the prison. It was the darkest. It was the dampest. It was where all the urine would run when it would just kind of run downhill and it would run down into these lower parts. It says he put them into stocks, all right? When you think of stocks, don't think about uh, you. If you visited Williamsburg, it's not like where you put your little hands in there and take a selfie. That's not the kind of stocks that it's talking about. It's talking back then, the stocks would have been on the ankles. They would attach them to your ankles. They would pull them up. You would be upside down. They would hit you on the top of your feet. Amazingly painful. That is what is going on in the context right here. And God miraculously opens the doors, miraculously opens the doors and the chains. And this is where our text starts. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, by the way, back then, if you lost a prisoner, you were going to get killed anyway. That was like their motivation. You lose a prisoner, prisoner escapes, we kill you. And so he's like, well, I might as well do it myself. So he says, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Listen, they'd just been locked up. They were sitting there in chains. They were, they were actually praising the Lord, a great chapter on worship as well. But when it says, do not harm yourself, we are still here. You got to ask the question as a quick side note is why is Paul still there? Why is Paul still there? He's innocent of the charges. God had miraculously opened the doors. Five chapters earlier, he did the same thing with Peter and Peter left. And yet there is Paul is, and he has the same thing happen and yet he stays, and somehow he motivates the other prisoners to stay. And I guess the only thing you can think of is Paul recognizes somewhere in the plan, the sovereignty of God to reach Philippi, when he prayed, God, help me reach this city, help me reach the people of Philippi, I guess somewhere in his heart, he's like, if part of God's plan is to reach Philippi, was to put him in prison so he could suffer well and worship well before a cynical, hardened Philippian jailer, and then tell him the reason why he was so joyful. That was a price that he was willing to pay. Now, that's just a quick side note for the Christ followers in here to say, most of the time, what we think is the most impressive thing to a watching world is when God blesses us. Look at me. God blessed me with a raise. God blessed me with a child. God blessed me with this awesome wife. God blessed me with this brand new home. And those are good things. Those are great things, Okay. But what really makes the watching world sit up and take notice of Christ followers is not when we say, hey, look, God blessed me with a third car. It's, you know what? My spouse left me, and I still love God. We have a miscarriage, and we're still worshiping God. 
I've been without a job for three months, and yet I still trust God. That's what people stand up and take notice. And apparently this jailer who was a hardened, cynical person, what they would do back then is they would take retired Roman army people, and they would basically give them a job as a jailer. It's like, we want to honor you because you are a good person in the army, and so we'll give you this cush job where you can over here and you can just kind of watch the prisoners. That's all you got to do. That's kind of like your, that's like your 401K. You can just kind of watch the prisoners. Well, this is happening. Go to, the, go to the next verse. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, and, he, and this, this is the question. He says, sir, what must I do to be saved? I mean, I just saw you worshiping after you got tortured. I just saw the chains fall off. I just saw you stay when you could have run. Of course he's scared. What must I do to be saved? And then in the shortest explanation of the gospel, here's what he says. He said, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. He's not talking about the household can piggyback. It's just like this is open to you and your household. Again, he says, what must I do? And he has to explain to him, it's not what you do. It's what's been done by Jesus already. And so here's the way the passage ends. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So again, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your family, you and your household. Household would have included more than just his immediate family. Basically, anybody under his roof, anybody dependent on him, that's who it was. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They shared the gospel with him and all who were in his house. And check out this. And he took them the same hour. It's pretty interesting. We'll look at this another week. You see two things jump out. When people give their life to Christ in the book of Acts, there seems to be an immediate affinity for the people of God. They just want to be around them. They want to minister to them. They go from, I remember that was the first fruit for me. I remember driving out of the high school in Wichita Falls, Texas, having spent the previous who knows how many years ridiculing and making fun of my three Christian brothers. And I remember immediately driving out in that cutlass salon of mine, driving out of that car after receiving Christ. And I'm like, man, I kind of like these two brothers that invited me to this meeting. I kind of not mad at them anymore. What happened? But the second one is baptism. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and what? And he was baptized. Now, what does that say? Baptized when? At once. He was baptized at once. He and all of his family. And then one more verse. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire house. I mean, this is a happy day. It's a happy day. He rejoiced with his entire household. What is he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in the fact that he had believed in God. He believed in God. So the simplest outline you're ever going to have today, all right, simplest outline. Number one is the idea of believe. Believe. That's the whole crux of the story. He says you got to believe in the Lord. It sounds simple enough. There's 80% of Americans say that they believe in Jesus Christ, but obviously it doesn't make a difference to a lot of folks. Somewhere in there, believe, believe in Jesus he started to be equated with believe that George Washington is our first president. It's like, I believe in that mentally, but George Washington is not making any current difference in my life that I know of. 
And so in the same way, it's got to mean something more. Jesus' half-brother James says that even demons, quote, believe this way, and at least they tremble. And we're not going to be hanging out with demons in heaven, all right? They're not going to be there, so there's got to be some kind of false belief. So what he says here, what must we do? And salvation, again, is something that's been done. Listen to me, please, please, whether you're the hardened cynic, whether you got so much baggage you can't even drag in here, or whether you're like super religious and you've been a member here for a long, long time, whether you're a staff member, whether you're a staff wife, whether you're a deacon, you've got to understand this is the principle that separates Jesus' gospel from every other religion. Every other religion teaches you what you must do to please God. Go here, say this, do that, pray this, chant that, make this trip. The gospel, on the other hand, is what Jesus Christ has done for you. Every other religion, it's the prophet who is a teacher and gives you a plan to earn God's favor. In Christianity, you get the story of a Savior who has earned God's favor for you and then offers it back to you as a gift to receive. That is why people who are baptized wear a shirt just like this, all right? It's like Jesus in my place. That is the gospel. Jesus as my substitute, okay? He didn't just die for me. He died instead of me. And so when you look at this one, he's like, what must I do? What must I do? This is what theologians, by the way, call the substitutionary atonement, that Jesus lived the life you and I were supposed to live and then died in our place, the death that we deserve to die. Now, listen, let me be kind of very graphic here for a second. The gospels show that he would be beaten until he no longer looked like a man. That his back would be laid bare by a whip. He would be beaten so badly that a lot of t- the insides could have come out. He had nine-inch nails put into his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns put on his head. His face was horribly disfigured. The prophet Isaiah says, you know, we couldn't even recognize him. People are like, that's disgusting. I actually remember reading blogs from church leaders talking about how the passion of Christ was so disgusting, it was pornographic, and it was way over the top. You know what? They don't understand. The reason that the cross was disgusting is because our sin is disgusting. That was Jesus dying for every act of violence, every sexual abuse, every spousal betrayal, every lie, every act of selfishness, every act of manipulation that we have ever committed. And so what you've got to ask is, do I have a story like all those people we saw. Do I have a story where all of a sudden I was going along and I believed in Jesus? That there was a demarcation point where I went from being somebody who did not believe in Jesus to somebody who did believe in Jesus. Now let me be clear so I don't confuse you unnecessarily. If you've met Jesus, you have a story. You may not remember the exact day or the exact hour or all the details of what happened, But you should know, you should know that you know Jesus. You should be able to talk about how you came to know Jesus. If you don't know that you know him and you can't talk about how you came to know him, then it's probably more than likely that you don't really know him at all. Now, a lot of times people will say, you know what, I'm trying, do you know God? Well, I'm trying hard, I'm doing my best, and sometimes like I feel like I do, but you know, so you're not sure that you know God, all right? Not totally. I mean, that works in no other area of your life. If I were to ask you, if you how, those of you that are married, how sure are you that you are married? Here's a quick pro tip. You know, on a scale from one to 10, how sure are you that you are married? One being I'm not sure at all, to 10 being I'm positive, pro tip would be say a what? A 10. A 10 is what you say. Yes, I know. Now, you might, know, you might not remember exactly when you saw your spouse for the first time, 
But I bet you remember the first time you're like noticed your spouse. I bet you understand. I bet you definitely remember the day that you actually got married and exchanged vows. You might periodically, to your own disaster, forget your anniversary, but if you, you understand, you know what, I stood before church and we exchanged vows. How could I forget that day? Now in the Bible, what you've got is you've got people that are, the Bible talks about people before Christ, they use words like lost, alienated from God, and without hope. People after they come to Christ, they've got words like found or reconciled to God, adopted into God's family, forgiven. The story of how that took place is called your testimony. It's called your conversion story. Again, I'm not trying to throw doubt on a legitimate relationship with Jesus. What I'm saying is that if you know Jesus, then you know you know Jesus. I'm not saying you don't have bad days. I'm not saying that you don't occasionally like, man, I can't believe I still did that. But it says you believe in, I think here's one of the reasons. Let me just be real blunt. The text says believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe, and I think the statistics would bear this out, what happens is there are many people in the South in particular because evangelicanism is somewhat more permeated here in the South. There are many people in the South who don't have a story because someone convinced you that you could accept Jesus as Savior without surrendering to him as Lord. Somebody told you, somebody told you, just pray this prayer, just a little ABC, just pray this little prayer, and everything's going to be okay. That is not biblical conversion. I'm not saying that you don't come to him like a child. What I'm saying is if repentance was not at all part of your conversion story, that's the reason you don't have a story. You don't follow Jesus like you follow somebody on Twitter or Instagram. It's like, oh, I like to look at their pictures, and I... You know, I like to look at what they say on social media, but I can take it or leave it. It has some influence on me, but, you know, I can just, maybe I'll take it, maybe I won't take it. That's not what the gospel is. You don't follow him like you follow back somebody. You don't say, well, I'm going to take it or leave it, all right? Let me be crystal clear. I wanted to write it down exactly the way I wanted to say it. Repentance and belief, biblically speaking, are part of the same whole. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin, if you will. There are two dimensions of the same thing. Here's what that means. We believe not only that Jesus lived and died, but we believe that Jesus lived and died for us. Personal application. It's not just I believe in the historical fact Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave, but I choose to rest my hopes and my salvation on him. We not only believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's a fact of history, but that he is our rightful Lord as well, and we submit to him as an act of volition. If somebody said, pray this prayer, and you did not have any idea of what surrender or repentance is, all you did is pray a prayer. Let me say it again. It is saved by grace. You can't do anything. Jesus did it all, but when you come to him, you got to come all in. you got to come all in. Tons of verses in the, in the scriptures talking about that. Even if you will not look at your family and say, you know what, in comparison to the way that I love Jesus, I hate my family, now, we're obviously supposed to love our family, but in comparison, it's like, I love Jesus. I no longer have dual affinity. I, have, I love my family, but I love Jesus so much more that it's not even worth comparing it to. Let me say it again. Here's, a, here's what happens in the South again. And don't write me an email because, again, I'll throw you back a bunch of statistics, all right? And here's the idea. Oftentimes in the Bible Belt, what happens is 
you never get to the core issue. The core issue is at some point, it's not just I love Jesus. Why wouldn't you love Jesus? It's that I turn from myself and my sin and my self-rule. I turn from me being the boss of my life. Repentance is a change of mind. I turn away from myself, and in doing so, I turn to Jesus and Jesus alone. That's biblical salvation. That's biblical conversion. Oftentimes in churches today, what you have is like the guy that's like, you know what? I want to be married, and I'm going to be faithful to my wife 90% of the time, all right? 90% of the time, okay? I know 100 women, and I'm going to be faithful to you in all but 10 of them. Like, no, that's not what it is. It's, I'm not saying there's not areas that God will show you all the time. The whole Christian life is about beginning again and repenting and beginning again. But you can't come to him even initially if you're like, I'm coming to you 75%. C.S. Lewis put it the best way. Here's what, here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, he said, you cannot come with preconditions or limitations. To possess eternal life, we, we must be willing to let everything go. We do not approach Jesus, and here it is, to negotiate eternal life. We approach him in total surrender. Quote, we don't come to him as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels laying down our arms. Let me ask you this question again. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you ever? I'm not saying that you pray a prayer. If you prayed a prayer, that's awesome. That is a actually a good way to express repentance and faith. It's a good biblical way to express repentance and faith. But if you prayed a prayer and nothing demonstrative happened in the following months and years, the Bible does not give you a lot of confidence to say that something actually happened back here. The way that you know something happened back here is something's going on present day right now. It's not like all I, somebody, preacher signed my Bible back when I was seven. How's that going to work at the judgment seat? It's not. It's not. So please hear me on this. You've got to get this. You've got to have a story. Again, I'm not saying you've got to have the date. I don't remember the exact date. And if you grew up in a Christian home, you might have woken up one day and like, I definitely believe in Jesus, and you begin to follow him. What I'm telling you is, if there was no repentance, there was no conversion. If there was no surrender, there is no testimony. Your testimony can be, I was sitting in church and I was listening to this preacher get all mad and in my face and we were about to baptize and have a happy time and then God showed me right there. I, have, I did not know Jesus. Jesus never changed my life. I've been religious, I've been a deacon, I've been even a staff member. I, he's, he's never changed, I never surrendered. I negotiated a settlement I would pray to him and he would forgive me all my junk. And today's the day that God wants you to surrender. He wants you to actually, and you don't have to close your eyes and bow your heads. I thought about it, I'm gonna do that, I'm not. We're not done with the message, all right? You can pray with your eyes open. If you do not have a story, if you don't know that you know that you know, that you know Jesus, that he saved you right where you are sitting, with your head up and your eyes out, you can just say back to God in your heart of hearts, God, I want to turn from my sin and myself. Just right where you are right now. All right? Right where you are. God, I want to turn from my sin and myself. As I sit in church, I want to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I am surrendering. I'm a rebel. I'm laying down all of my arms. 
Say, God, I'm throwing myself on the grace of God found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Just tell him that right now. God, right now, I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I'm throwing myself on the grace that I see in who Jesus was and what Jesus did on the cross for me. He's not just the Lord. I am embracing him right now as my Lord. He's not just the Savior. I'm embracing him right now as my Savior. That's what I'm doing right now. And then you just say, you know what? In Jesus' name, amen. You're like, what do I do now? Do I need to take a class or get a Bible or whatever? All right, here's what you got to do now. Biblically speaking, here's, here's, here's what you do now. It's, it's you're baptized. You're like, isn't that a little quick? I mean, I, I'm six seconds old in the Lord, all right? Is that not a little bit quick? Now, what you see is the order here is the same as in all the other stories in the book of Acts. He believes and he's baptized. And remember how the text says, it says he was baptized what? At once, at once. If you look into the Greek language, which is written in, you know what it means? At once, that's what it means. It means at once, he was at once the same hour. Listen to me. Baptism is evidence of your repentance. Baptism is evidence of your repentance. It's the first step of obedience of a disciple. Every, every New Testament baptism on record, from Peter in Acts 2, where 3,000 people hear the message and get baptized, to Philip baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, to Ananias baptizing Paul, all of them, all of them were immediate, spontaneous, if you will, as soon as possible. You're like, well, what if somebody didn't really? You're like, why would I do that? This is an outward demonstration of an inward commitment that you have made, whether that be five minutes ago or whether that be five years ago. It is a public declaration of a new association that you have. It is an outward symbol of an inward commitment. It's the wedding ring if you're married. Let me just use it one more time. It's the wedding ring. It's the wedding ring that I have right here. This wedding ring does not make me married. Baptizing does not make you saved. I wear the ring because I am married and I'm proud of who I'm married to, all right? So I was like, okay, anybody who wants to see this is an outward symbol that 29 years ago, I stood in front of a church and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, till death do his part, so help me God. That's what I said 29 years ago. What baptism is, is saying, you know what? I have said for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, until death do bring us together to actually the Lord Jesus. That's what baptism is. And you're like, why is that so important? It's not a big deal. It's, it's, who are you to, I mean, just lovingly say, who, who are you to say that it's not a big deal? It's public evidence lining up with Jesus. It's saying, you know what? I believe in the message and the person of, I believe in the person and message of Jesus. It's symbolism. It's death to the old life, and it's showing the new life, resurrection of the new life. You're like, um, why do we have to do it that way? Now, let me, let me, let me kind of go into a couple of the pragmatics here. All right, the reason that we baptize like we're about to baptize is that's the way we see it done in the Bible. All right, so we're not the smartest people in the world, but we can read our Bible and then try to emulate what you see in the Bible. Everyone, you can see there, it's like, you know, they... Belief in baptism and what it seems to be the method was is, you know what, I'm going to put you down in the water. I'm going to bring you right back up. I'm going to picture the old person going down the water, the new person coming back up. I'm going to picture Jesus being buried and then him being resurrected again. The word baptism is actually, 
a, not even a translated word. It's actually a, what they call a transposed or a transliterated word. When the translators were coming to this, it wasn't even necessarily a religious word. It was used for all different kinds of things. It was used actually in some other literature. The word meant to plunge or to soak or to dip. They used it for people who drowned. We will promise you that will not happen today. All right, we hadn't anybody drowned in that baptistry in months, okay? So it wasn't a religious word at all. They used it for people who drowned, ships that went down, all that. It's, a tr- it's not a translation. It's like, hey, we don't know how to translate that, so let's just transliterate it. So they took the word baptizo and then transliterated it, letter, 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 into what we use as the word baptism. So here's the question. If you have become a Christ follower, have you been baptized? If you become a Christ follower, whether again, that be a few minutes ago, whether that be last month, last week, last year, if you have become a Christ follower, if you have believed in Jesus, biblical belief, have you then followed that, and that is the pattern, have you followed that in believer's baptism? That is the New Testament profession of faith. There's nothing wrong with walking an aisle. There can be some great things about that. There's nothing wrong with coming here and making the platform an altar. That can be extremely good. But when it comes to the New Testament profession of faith to say, you know what? I'm giving evidence of something that has happened on the inside. It is, without a doubt, it is, it is baptism. It's a flag that you put in the ground that signifies to everybody watching, I am his, he is mine. Jesus has saved me. He is my Lord, and I follow him now. Not perfectly, but consistently and intentionally. That's what that means. Let me just kind of a couple, let me just give you a few things that maybe you're thinking before we go into the time of response. You might say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I didn't come to church to get wet, all right? I'm not ready. If you have repented and embraced Christ, you are ready. This is the catalyst in many ways for your spiritual maturity. Two questions you need to be able to answer. Did you trust Jesus and what he's done on the cross, and did you receive his gift? Did you willingly, voluntarily, did you receive his gift, and then will you do whatever he tells you to do? That's basically the only two questions. Have you received the gospel? Have you received Jesus, number one? And number two, will you do what he's telling you to do? Well, if you answer yes on both of those, what he tells you to do is as quick as you can, follow your your embrace of Christ, your conversion with showing that by being baptized. It's not convenient. That's another one. It's just not convenient. Uh, Okay, I know this is cheating. I know this is cheating. But Jesus hung naked on a cross for you, was ridiculed, beaten, spit on, a crown of thorns pushed on his head for you and for you to say, I don't want to get in a pool of warm water, quite audacious, quite audacious to say that's what he'll do for me, but it's not convenient for me right now. It wasn't convenient for him. The first evidence of your surrendered to Christ's lordship is your baptism. It's so important that when he gave the following orders in Matthew 28, what's known as the Great Commission, what he says, what I want you to do now, here's what's gonna happen, I'm about to leave. You're gonna remember what I told you. I want you to go spread the word, 
But he specifically includes in those final words, he says, listen, and when they subscribe to our way of thinking, when they decide to become my disciple, my follower, it's not enough that they make a decision on the inside. I want to see evidence of that on the outside. I want you to baptize them. Some of you, this is that moment. This is the moment God has told you to do this for some of you for years and you're like, it's not time, it's not time. It's time, all right? It's time for you. This is your day. You're like, well, I was baptized as a baby, okay? Uh, no offense intended at all, but in the Bible, baptism is always presented in the Bible as your own profession of faith, okay? And I was, I was, I was sprinkled as a baby. I was six months old and I got christened. I thank God for parents who were doing what they thought they were supposed to do. But you know what that was? When I got christened, that was not my statement of faith. That was my parents' statement of faith, okay? And so what I did then years later is, you know what? It was time to declare this is my own statement of faith. And that goes for some of you as well, that you got baptized early on, maybe as or, you know, a young child, and then maybe it was several years later. Maybe you were an adult. Maybe you were a teen. And then you realized, you know what? I just did that because my friends told me to do it. I just did that because everybody else at camp was walking forward. But then years later, actually, that's when I came to faith in Christ. And then you need to be baptized on the right side of the cross as a testimony. A couple other questions. You're like, well, I didn't bring a change of clothes. Didn't bring a change of clothes again. We have all this stuff for you. All of it. You actually might even go home with some stuff, okay? I mean, you might even go home with like a new hair dryer. I don't know if we're giving these out or you're just using them, but you, I don't know. Well, I came with some people. They'll wait for you. I promise they will wait for you. Matter of fact, if it's like your connect group, some of you are here with your connect group, man, I'm, when it's time, let me ask some people in your connect group, come on down with me. Get around the baptistry. I want to let them cheer you on right there. You're like, well, you know, it's almost time to go, and it's at the end of the service, and I don't want to be like, we adjusted. I don't know. Don't even, you don't have to look at your wife. We adjusted the service so there's time now at the end. We did two songs, not four. We did two so we could do two or three or ten or whatever we need to do right now. It's like, how's this going to work? Um, we're going to show you a quick video to encourage you. These are some people that were in the seats that you're in right now, some of them just last year. Last year, they were sitting there, and they were wanting to hold on to that seat, and it's like, man, I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go in front of a bunch of people. I don't want all that stuff, and here's what's, we're going to show you that quick video afterwards. What's going to happen is everybody, every, you're going to, everybody's going to stand. Everybody's going to stand. Some people, you're going to step out. You're already scheduled to be baptized. You've already got your shirt. You're just going to kind of come over to where your campus pastor is going to tell you to go, and I'll tell you here after this video, but others of you just need to step out. You're going to have volunteers at the door. They'll be waving. It's going to take like three minutes for you to just kind of get dressed, put your, put your T-shirt on. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a brief prayer. We're going to watch this video, and then we're going to do baptisms. Father, I want to pray that the next three or four minutes as we see stories of people who are in this same place, that you would move on the hearts of people today. And that people by the hundreds would simply, sometimes it just comes down to obe obeying. God, help people to obey today in Jesus' name.
I always had an excuse. I was always like, you know, this, I'm busy this weekend or I have to travel or, you know, the kids have this or that. And I always found an excuse and I'm like still finding myself coming here every Sunday. But I felt like there was just like this, like I was, I wasn't committed like I could and should be. And um, commitment's important to me. And I feel like I didn't want to be half in. I want to be all in. Last year I was, I was here listening to a, a message from Pastor Bruce on baptism. And I really had that, um, that tug on my heart at that moment in time. But for whatever reason, you know, just kind of sitting there in that chair, there was just this, this overarching fear. I wanted my baptism to be perfect. I'm a perfectionist by nature, and I had this image in my mind of having all of my friends and family there, everybody that's helped me on this journey, having them be there, planning when it was gonna be, making sure I was wearing waterproof mascara so I wouldn't have tears all down my face. And I just, I wanted my baptism to be perfect. I actually had thought about waiting just cause I didn't think my family would be okay with it, but I decided I'd rather be accurate in my faith than accepted. I was like, this is the next step in my faith. This is how I take that step forward. I was just really eager. It was something that I knew needed to be done and something that I just I just knew it was right. Cuando me dieron la oportunidad de bautizarme, sabía yo que lo tenía que hacer inmediatamente. And I just couldn't wait any longer. So something was just pulling me. Hey, you need you need to to nail this down. You know, you're, you're a Christian. You've you've taken that step, and it just seemed like a natural next step to take for me. I think the reason it was so important I did it right then is I had been thinking about it for a while, and if I tried to plan it, it was never going to happen. I feel like going into like a public area shows people that I made my decision and. I'm like ready for it. Coming up out of the water is just, it's a speechless feeling. It's, um, it's just great. If you're really living for Christ and yourself, then I, there shouldn't be anything you should hold back. I just, I cried and cried and cried. So many happy tears. This church of people is is here to support you. Nunca habrá un momento perfecto. Siempre va a haber algo que te detendrá. To publicly confess your love for Jesus is one of the most amazing things I've ever done. You know, I feel like pulling the trigger and going for it is the way to um, outwardly become a part of this community. I wouldn't tell anybody to wait. I mean, if you feel it in your heart and you know that you're saved, then I say go for it. I think if you are on the fence of, you know, getting up, then you most definitely should do it. Just forget about all the other people who are around you, all the people who are not, and just, you know, do, do what you need to do. Here's a, listen, this is important. This is a moment that can literally reshape uh, your life, right? So you're like, I'm not sure. Come have the conversation uh, at least. So here's what I want us to do. Build more church. I want you to, everybody stand to your feet, all right? Stand to your feet. And by the way, if 
Uh, you're going to see volunteers uh, at the doors. So again, if you're already scheduled, you come right over here. And if you're like, I want to be baptized today, I know Christ, I need to follow through in believers' baptism, you'll see volunteers at every door. So some of you are like, I'm going to get out of here early. They'll think you're coming for baptism, all right? So ideas, make sure, make sure. All right, so you, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, uh, uh, you're going to step out. Go ahead and do it right now. If you want to be, a, you step out right now. Fo- church family, you step back, put your hands together, encourage these folks, just give them a big round of applause, all right? And here's what's going to happen is, uh, this is, uh, you, you put your hands together, here's what we're going to do for the next whatever minutes, all right? We are going to, we're going to be clapping, this is not like graduation where you hold your applause to the end, all right? You applaud, you applaud all you want, so you're going to affirm people by what you clap with, and then you're going to praise God by singing the song. So you're going to have to be ambidextrous, use both your mouth and your hands. You're going to, you're going to sing to God's glory, but you're going to affirm people every time they go down. You'll see them on the camera. Every time they go down, man, let's just say this. We're going to celebrate with what God has done. All right. All right. Practice real quick right now. Just go ahead and put your hands together. All right. Good.